Let's go ahead and get on with our teaching today. And so the theme is going to be based on a new year and a perspective that perhaps is old, but there is the need to find revival in our hearts with the times that seem so perilous. As we look at the scriptures, though, there really is nothing new under the sun. And the only thing that really changes with regard to culture and its behavioral bents, and at times the strength of the church, and at times as well its waning weakness, is simply the clothing. Probably not much different. Population, that's increased, that's for sure. I think we're due to hit... Uh, what, does anybody have that census number on what we're going to be hitting with uh, population soon? Huh, irrelevant. We're packing the earth. But God wants to pack heaven. And that's the perspective that the church needs to have. And so with regard to that, the theme, I'll see if it's been printed up there. probably hasn't. But if you had your bulletin, You'll have to capture the figurative language right now because it is figurative. It is. I'm going to see if I can find it. Chris, I think I grabbed the wrong bulletin. Okay, here we go. Writing over it. Fig, you're right. Fig, you're right. The play on words deals with a parable that actually was an observable thing that Jesus indeed made a story of concerning what his disciples would be making inquiry about and ultimately what we know to be a curse that the Lord put upon a tree that was putting on a false persona. Now a tree isn't a person, but we do know that illustratively the tree was to personify a people. And in this case, it was the nation Israel. There are two trees really that receive, with regard to those people, merit. The olive tree, which is symbolic of spiritual privilege, and the fig tree, which is symbolic of national privilege. And I emphasize the word privilege. A privilege that God gave to a specific and peculiar people group, a nation in which the oracles of God, the entrusted word of God, would be given to them a light in a dark world to shine and for his name to be made known. So that's kind of the short of it. And yet, what we see in the scriptures is that they, as a nation, were corrected on multiple occasions spanning thousands of years. And even to this decade that we are in, they are still under a corrective work of God. But it's getting better. Because within the nation of Israel, believers have been raised up from among them. The evangel, the message of the gospel, has gone out to them. 
It actually came from them. Jewish people at the time of Jesus believed in him, and they became whom we now identify with as well, Christians, followers of Christ. So this is all laying the groundwork for what I believe is both a mandate to stay encouraged, to read what Jesus said, to understand who you guys are generationally. And with that, I'm going to anchor you in our first text, which is Mark 11. And as I do that, I kind of humored myself today, kind of trying to figure out where I was generationally. And I'll share that with you as best as I'm able to. So in Mark chapter 11, we'll be picking it up in verse 12. We'll be also visiting the Gospel of Matthew in two sections. And we'll close in an epistle that is very conclusively exhorting us on how we should be and what we ought to be looking forward to. That's basically it. Figure right, meaning don't be wrong about the times that we live in now. Don't falter because of feeling greatly disappointed. I, to some degree, I admit, I, I wish that there was a revisitation of better years. But I know this, that when I look at the Bible and when I see what Jesus was very, very careful to give as clues that we could confidently take open, then it makes me feel pretty petty, pretty pitiful, that I would long for years that seemed to me to be better than where I'm at. And that's the messing of the mind that the enemy does, always endeavoring to get us to look back to what was seemingly a more glorified living situation. But as we move in faith to faith and glory to greater glory, things have to remove itself from anything other than God making a return for his people and ultimately a cleansing of the earth and to give to those who in expressed faith eternal life in a perfect state. These are the things that we've been learning in Revelation and warfare that we're presently involved in. So I started to think about this idea with regard to the generation that we are a part of. So for me, I'm a baby boomer. The baby boomers are acknowledged as a generation that came from the World War II generation, labeled sociologically as the great generation, the greatest generation, and that probably is no doubt because of the age of the men and women who rallied both nationally and globally to defeat uh, wickedness, evil on the planet, the rise of Nazi Germany. It was an amazing time. Young 20-year-olds flying planes, taking ships, marching on the ground, and all seemingly in the name of righteousness. That isn't right what they're doing. 
it's right that we take action against that. And so within this context, which is important to note, that generational context, Israel is going to be given world favor at the closure of World War II, which links in with the parable that Jesus is teaching. My generation, the baby boomers, again, about 1946 to 1967, I believe, is the time frame of the boomers. And notably, which I forgot, we're the me generation. And I thought of it. I know that there are specific terms for the other generations that followed. But to me, as I was pondering it, this is the way that I defined the generations that followed. So I'm a part of the me generation. The 46ers, I guess it ups a little bit to about 67, 69. The me generation to the not me generation to the who? Me? To the you want a piece of me? To the me and my truth <laughs> generation. <laughs> I think I covered five of them. Those are my names of the generations. But when you kind of look at it, you're going, I can see that. I can hear it. I can feel it. But what we want to know for sure is in all of this, there's a Jesus generation. So I can laugh about what my generation was titled at, and I can see the trends that invited that. I can see the trending on all of these, but I can't forget, and you're not to forget, you're a Jesus generation. You're waiting for the blessed hope, and you're exercising gifts and talents that the Spirit of God has given you, equipped the church with, that the world might know and know Him and become a part of a great and awesome plan that he has to bring us together as a family in heaven, down on earth, and then a new heaven and a new earth. And it will not have the influence of sin and corruption any longer. However you think that you look like in your inner man, you'll look better than even that is able to imagine. What is falling apart will no longer be an issue in your life. So in the Gospel of Mark, situating ourselves on this for being able to say, this is true. If the birth of Jesus predicated, prophesied in Isaiah 700 years in advance came to pass, if Daniel was able to foretell in his tenure prophetically when Jesus would come in on his triumphal entry, then surely this too will come to pass. So here we go. Mark 11, picking it up in verse 12. Now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he, Jesus, was hungry and seeing from afar a fig tree, having leaves, 
He went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. There's a brevity between the next passage, which identifies what happened to the tree, but there's an important picture here as well. As this is a curse that he is uttering, he moves into the temple, which is the spiritual housing of Israel. The fig tree remembers the national identity of Israel. The spiritual identity of Israel is the olive tree, and it is intended by fruit and by a variety of other attributes intended to show God's spiritual favor to Israel. Or as I mentioned earlier, the privileges that Israel had been given. But he moves into this temple, it says. He went into the temple, began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves, verse 16. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. 17, then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of thieves. And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teachings. And when evening had come, he went out of the city. The spiritual hub of Israel has been corrupted. When there's corruption in the spiritual hub of any nation contrary to God, then it means the national Corruption will become evident, which we see time and time again when any nation forsakes God, who has made himself evident to all peoples of all generations, the nation will fall. We would be no exception to that, except that exceptionally, our churches, the diminished in the strength that they once knew, are still, by and large, the true church, sold out to the gospel and to the requirements of Jesus to share that word and to go where it's essential for its effectiveness. We are broadcasting. We are ministering God's word. We are praying for people. We are giving people hope that is from our perspective anchored in the word as sure as anything that they've ever wanted to believe in at any time. And so this is an important, if you would, pause or focus 
with regard to why Jesus is able to say to that fig tree, no one will eat fruit from you again. He was making a physical expression for any who would pass by en route from the city to wherever they were going. And they would say, huh, that was a strong tree. I was looking forward to the fruit of that tree in its season. And yet there would be none. There was none for God, Jesus, to receive when he walked by it. And yet it had the illusion of being fruitful. Leaves out would be indicative that fruit would be under it. That's where he reached for it. It wasn't. Meaning that the facade of even nations and cultures will not hide at all what God is intending to receive from them. His expectation will be satisfied, and if it is not satisfied, then there will be corruption and ultimately death. That was the lesson there. The disciples that say that as they move from this point, which right now is a cleansing of the spiritual hub of Israel, Jesus is going in there saying, this place has been defiled. And it's not simply because of the merchandising. That was simply indicative of the compromise that had been permitted in the temple. He's just saying, you guys aren't even praying anymore. That's what this place is established for. And it's not even a priority to you. When Jesus would teach in the temple, which was with frequency, were the masses there? Actually, they weren't. And those who were in religious authority or position, the Sadducees and Pharisees, they being in there, there were only a few that would have been taking notes that showed holy fear of God. What are they fearing right now? They're fearing what the people might end up doing, which is realizing, you guys are fake. This is the authentication of God that we are in the presence of. Holy fear breaks out in them, but the Pharisees are afraid of what the people would do because of the popularity of Jesus in the sincerest manner. Oh, some wanted him for their reasons, but most were impressed that he was sharing as God and man the heart of the Lord, and their hearts were being touched. And so in verse 20, it says, after evening had come, and it says they had left the city, that in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. And Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. It moves into another illustration. But to be reminded, he's saying, as a nation, this is going to be the way that it shall go. But you don't get caught up in that. 
because you must live for the hope you will be caught up by me as God. You get caught up into anything other than God as a Jesus generation in the easily persuasion of the media towards things that we should be more accommodating to or even the treachery of the world. Why live for God who limits you on what you can do and what probably you ought to take advantage of doing? And Jesus is simply saying right now, you keep your perspective on God and what my mission is and what you ultimately will be given authority and privilege to do. This nation has lost its privilege. This temple has lost its privilege for whom it was to identify has come into it with frequency. I have been denied. I correctively have made changes in how they are to conduct business. As a result of that, there are now plans to assure my demise. And so this temple, and he will tell them, and we'll take a look at that, will suffer a consequence. Is this bad news? No, it shows you that God is publishing further what ultimately will lead to the consummation of the ages, the summing of all things up, the ridding out of sin. When he's moving in here to cleanse the temple, he's doing so as a statement as to why the nation has been defiled because the temple was defiled. We're seeing that in churches today. And this has nothing to do with apparel. I came from a church in which your apparel identified you in your seriousness as a worshiper. And I came to realize that it wasn't how I came in dress, it was what I came in for, and I came in for God. I realized, as you've heard me say before, especially as a Baptist, when I made it out of a service with my tennis shoes on, I'm going, I don't have to polish my shoes anymore? That's awesome. I'm going to try a baseball cap next week. And I tried a baseball cap, and I made it through that service. And then I tried it with holes in my jeans, and I made it through that service. There was nothing I was doing to be intentionally willfully disrespecting God, I realized that I was in a state of holy fear, loving the Lord, loving the liberty, still admiring those who came in dressed to the hilt with ties, and I still am. When guys come in and they're dressed in their best, that's awesome. But it doesn't diminish the fact that the invitation to be in that place with liberty to worship God with the holy fear of the Lord was so important and so inviting for me to begin a trek that really never changed at all. So Jesus moves in, I'm going to back us up right now, to Matthew 24.
I want to pick this up in verse 32. Chapter 24 of Matthew, verse 32, and we will see this as a parallel. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. What did we learn just in our account in Mark? The fig tree was showing its counterfeit nature as a tree, symbolic of Israel's nationality. It was showing a counterfeit. It was not what it should have appeared to have been ready for, and that was to render fruit. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. He's using the illustration in this account of the fig tree as a clue. It's a prophetic clue. It's no less intended to be anything but factual than what the scriptures in Isaiah 700 years before would have prophesied. And the book of Daniel would have prophesied. The Lord was saying that in this symbol, you can be sure that when this is seen, the national symbol of Israel on what we would call the landscape of geopolitical tension. Because what is going to happen, Jesus will also give us a rendering prophetically that did some 30 years after he went to the cross. And we can pick that up in the first verse. But right now he's saying, essentially, that generation that sees the fig tree budding is the generation that stands to see the coming of the Lord. Not the judgment of the Lord, but rather the salvation of the Lord removing from the earth to gather his people to himself. And that's the church. And that, as we have been learning, is the seven-year period, which marked on earth will be three and a half years in which a political and spiritual adversary of both the peoples on this earth, but a counterfeit to God, will be in place. And he will not be a Putin. He will not be one that, to those who remain, find themselves threatened. He will have seemingly the answers to explain the absence of millions and millions of believers no longer influencing culture, talking about Jesus. He will be able to make alliances work among nations, and ultimately he will be able to seduce the Jewish people to sell themselves out once again for the purpose of having a temple 
that was taken down to the ground in AD 70. So return to verse 1 of chapter 24. We're just going back to the start. We're talking about the temple. The account that we left when Jesus swept it out, turned tables, chastised the religious order. And in 24 and verse 1, we're going to hear what he says prophetically that in fact did take place. Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Titus was a Roman general that came in in AD 70. And in order to subdue both the effects of Christianity within the culture of Judaism and Judaism itself, they ransacked the temple. They lit it on fire, gold melted. And you've heard the account. And as a result of desiring that, one stone upon another was torn down. How it was done, do not understand. Because when you look at the foundation stones of where the temple was built, it's amazing to consider how anybody could move them without the machinery that we have today. But they did. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, verse 3, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? We want to know when you're coming. Well, right now they were still wrestling with his going to the cross and the promise that the tomb would not hold him. But now, for a moment, they have at least, it would appear, a future sense of urgency. When's it going to happen? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceive you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilence, earthquakes in various places. Have you seen the earthquake accounts coming to your attention lately? They're popping up close and at distance, and they're wreaking havoc. These are like five-point and seven-point earthquakes which topple buildings, split roads and mountains. Things happen of grievous consequence. The frequency is astounding. Volcanoes erupting. 1980 was when one of our local mountains in Washington blew up. Most of us that were in those days remember the fallout. I still remember sweeping ash from Grant's Pass off of my car before going to school. Greater frequencies, tremors in the earth, things are happening. 
All these are the beginning of sorrows. Not happy days? I love happy days. They're all the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my sake. There's actually a pause here. One is prophetic, what's going to happen. This too is prophetic, but it's actually a practical warning to them. For you guys, hearing this, this is what's up ahead for you. You've followed me. You've made enemies of yourself. But that's my world. The world that I've entered into is that enmity with me, warring with God. I'm going to take care of that. We know that ultimately what Jesus did do was to satisfy what would be the wrath of God intended for a world that had rejected him. And the provision of Jesus was to not only buffer it, but it was to completely eliminate judgment by any who receive him in faith. He goes on to say simply that at the beginning of sorrows, you're going to get delivered, and then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. That's kind of present tense, isn't it? We can't even have sports games anymore without broken noses and bones, and that's not even in the sports. Those are the spectators. <laughs> that's not the gridiron. Those are people that are just nasty in the stands. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Boy, we've seen cults do that, haven't we? And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. What's happening? Well, the evangel is going out. The message of the gospel is going out in times such as these. And there are those who are giving their lives and knowing that as such, they will lose their lives in nations which are anti-Christian and fully Islamic. The punishment for being a believer is death. And it's gruesome. It's either your head's lopped off or you're stoned. And they make no apologies for defending their faith. We do not need to make apologies for asserting our faith at all. We know what we're doing. We know who told us to do it. We know what his promise is for us in the doing of it. If indeed Jerusalem fell, then what's the positive word for you in taking comfort in what's happening now? May 14th, 1948. The nations of the world grieved for what they had heard happen to the Jews. Six to eight million people killed around the world that only had one attribute in similitude. They were Jews. And how people got on board with that, we can only say apathetic and sinister, blinded. God permitted it, but it was wicked, horrific. To this day, there is still a tribunal, military tribunal that is prosecuting any that were a part of Adolf Hitler's 
genocide, maniacal plans to exterminate a people group. There's still people paying for that. They're in their latter 90s right now, but they're still being discovered and they're being incarcerated for it. That's how wicked at that time the world perceived this treatment of the Jews. What are we seeing now? Quite the opposite. We're seeing a nation now being pressured to give up their land, to forget about what history records as is their rightful place, the privilege that is theirs. So where does this lead us right now? If the me generation, me, you guys too, because I'm still alive, my generation is still here, we're just getting older, but it means, in my opinion, very likely, we can do some numerations and calculations. They're not, this is going to happen. I'm saying that we can be wise. We can look at this and say with hope. Now, one of the first times that this happened contemporarily was in 1988. I know why it happened. Because one of the rich numbers in the scriptures is 40. And so people began to calculate. Well, if the word is true concerning that generation, seeing the budding of the nation of Israel or the, the fig tree, which represented Israel, then a generate one of the first, yeah, 40 years sounds good to me. So 1988 became the year in which the Lord will return. People got ready. The church got ready. Woohoo! They actually had all nighters <laughs> waiting for that kumbaya moment. I'm not saying that that was in part wrong, but Jesus said, even the angels don't know, but you got clues to be ready. And when it didn't happen, what happened to the church? They got laughed at. They felt betrayed and discouraged by the pastors that promoted it. And there was a falling away. So where does that leave us? It doesn't leave us hopeless. But it does leave us to examine once again, what does it mean to be that generation? So if you move the slide scale and keep going, and I will, the next one that we can read in scriptures would be about 50 years. In 50 years, there was a time called the year of Jubilee. It was about every 50 years. 50 years could indeed include a generation. It was to relieve those who'd been under, if you would, the necessity of being slaves, paying off debts. And so God made a provision for them to be relieved of that. 50 years is a reasonable number. That puts us, though, in 1998. I was there in 1998, somewhere. I was 41. The Lord didn't come, 1998. What's the next number that you can anchor yourself in? Here's a good one, Psalm 110. Psalm 95, verse 10. Seventy years hath a man been given, eightieth due by strength. Seventy years. David Pendit has a man been given, eightieth due by strength. That puts us at 2018. So what do you think about that one? We were here, right? Two years before COVID. So right now you've heard my life, 31 years in 1988, 
41 in 1998, 61 in 2018, and what remains? Let's shoot up to 80 just for fun. That's 2028. I'll be 71. That's not really too far down the road for me because I'm anticipating Social Security at 66.6. What a number to give me. I can collect it 666. Blasphemy. I'm going to collect now. No, I'm not, because there's a big savings. <laughs> the reason that I'm pointing these things out is that we know that if all of these other cues and clues given by God and through the word of God have in fact come to pass, we have every reason to be excited until the day in which it doesn't happen and then we can fall back and say, well, the Lord said that we wouldn't know, not even the angels in heaven, but my Father in heaven knows. But we don't have to be clueless and stupid and we can live with the hope and we can give people that hope. No, I'm not going to give you the day. I'm not even suggesting, per se, the target of the year. But I'm saying that God does anchor within the context of Scripture, of genealogies, of chronologies, numbers. And these numbers are anchored in truth. And if the Lord, by reason of strength, says in the 80th year, but all of this is hinging on what? Israel. So Israel's already celebrated its 70th year, 75th. So we are those who now say, it draws nigh. Any time between now and the fact, we're to be ready. That's the hope of this New Year's message. We want things maybe as they once were. It's not going to happen. It's got to get worse. But it doesn't mean we have to be worse. We can have hope. That's what gives people hope is the confidence of those who are following, not a trend, but a supernatural being who has assured them of a destination that relieves people of corruption and uncertainty. So boomers, hang in there, because we've got Zoomers that are flying out of there. I talked to somebody on the phone the other day, and I said, may I pray with you before we conclude? Actually, I'm not religious anymore, and my heart just sunk. One, I do it regardless. It's the second time, though, as a pastor, that I've heard that phrase. The first one wasn't so offended the second one I was because this person was a Zoomer who in the hardship of life and seemingly having not a, an assured word of hope said, I no longer am one of God's people. I don't do that anymore. So no, you can't pray. And there was a click. And I just was devastated. Click. Hey, can I pray for you? Click. I'm not religious. That's what the Zoomers are doing. Because it's not simply the me generation. It's now that 
with steroids, me and my truth, not God's truth, my truth, the way I want to build my world, the way I want to shut people out of my life, the way I'm contending not for the faith, but for my own personal interests. In brevity, just turn with me, please, to Second Peter. You'll see why. And we'll conclude here. Note the times, the relevancy of this. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of a reminder. This is a reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before the holy prophets, before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they will willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, and by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Whatever you're seeing that you say is corrupt and needing correction, God says, I've got that taken care of. There's a reservation for them. If they do not repent, reservation for them in a judgment, being ungodly as men. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. What day is he on now? With regard to his patience. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that what? Any should perish. What love? but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. This is a different day, but it reminds us that in advance of it, all of these things are not to be alarming us. They're to be motivating us motivating us on the truth of God's word. And verse 14 to its conclusion is what we see as motivational too. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace and without spot or blameless. But it's reminding us motivationally, verse 13, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's where you to be thinking. It's going to get better. God's designing that. Chapter 
Jumping down to verse 17, Therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the errors of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory both now and forever. Figure right. Keep your eyes on Israel, in which God's eyes are upon and his plans are initiated, and the church has already been promised by the Lord to prevail against the works of hell itself. We have everything to be encouraged by, even in long sermons. What if this was the word that was to be heard for just one more day and you guys did something with it? You mean like a work? No. What if you just prayed about it? What if that was it? You just prayed one more time in the way that the Spirit has compelled you to pray and it was sufficient and the next thing you know, we're gone in a billionth of a second. 